Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Listen to the word of the Lord. This is from Hebrews, the second chapter, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Yep, this time you can sit down. You know, yesterday afternoon I had a couple hours to work on my sermon, uh, get it finished up before this morning. Uh, so I opened up my laptop and pulled up my writing software, began to get to work, and then a little notification popped up, said there's an upgrade available. It's an upgrade to the operating system available. Would you like to upgrade? And, you know, I got hit with that bug. There's something new. There's something better. There's something greater than, than what I had before. Do you want it? Who can say no to a free upgrade? So I clicked yes. And I didn't lose my sermon. So that's good. If you've been around for more than a couple months, you know I've had a hard time with computers recently. But uh, I, I did the upgrade. Everything worked. Well, we're in this series in, in Hebrews where uh, we're tracking this argument about Jesus being greater. Jesus is a greater substitute, a greater priest, a greater prophet, a greater revelation of God. Today we're up to chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Uh, if you're using that Bible under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1188. If you've got one of these Hebrews journals, which by the way, we have uh, more of these down at the Welcome Center that you can pick one up for just a couple of dollars. And since we're only on page 10 today out of... I don't know, 58, you got plenty of room left for your notes for the rest of the series. Well, in this, this section that we're about to look at, the author is going to explain that there's something new. There's something better. There's something greater. But it may not be exactly what you expect. Do you want it? So Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, as we jump into this, uh, I want to take a, a moment to remember where we are in the overall flow of the argument of this letter. Uh, the author began immediately by explaining that the Son of God is a greater revelation of God than the prophets of old. That was right away, chapter 1, first couple of verses. He's a greater priest than the priests of the old system, it's something he's hinted at and is going to develop more a little bit later in the letter. The Son of God is greater than the angelic messengers of God. That's been the focus of everything we've been looking at so far in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. This, the author of this letter, we don't know who it is, so I have to keep referring to the person as the author. Uh, may have been a guy, may have been a woman, I don't know. I, so I, Sometimes I'll just say the author, sometimes he, it, it just, whoever it was... Uh, he uses what's called a string of pearls approach in chapter 1, uh, strung together 
nine Old Testament quotes and allusions, all to make a single point, that the Son of God is greater than the angels. Chapter 2 began with a warning. Pastor Jeff handled that last week. If the testimony, the message we got from the angels was reliable, we should listen to it. Then if the Son of God is greater, how much more should we listen to the message from the Son of God? He's even more reliable than the angels is the implication. Don't ignore it. Now, in today's section, chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the author is finally going to identify for us who he means when he says the Son of God. So you notice he hasn't identified the Son of God yet. We're two chapters in, and he's only now telling us who is this one who is greater than the angels? Who's this one he's talking about? But before he tells us who it is, because he knows who it is, and we know who it is because we've been talking about how Jesus is greater for this, uh, this whole series so far, uh, he's anticipating an objection, right? If, if he's going to say Jesus is the Son of God who is greater than the angels, the immediate objection is, well, how, how can that how can that be true? Jesus was a man, not a God, and a man who died. Gods don't die. So he's got to tackle this objection, this possible objection, first before he introduces who Jesus is. How can a man who died be a God greater than the angels? It doesn't make sense. doesn't compute. And it's a good question. So we'll jump into Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 and find out how the author answers it. Because it's interesting. What he does is... a as he's going to do throughout the whole letter, is appeal to the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 8. We're going to look in kind of three broad movements this morning at Psalm 8 originally in context, and then Psalm 8 the way the author of Hebrews understands it, and then Psalm 8 as he explains it in the second half of this passage after he quotes it. So Psalm 8, we're going to look at it in context, we're going to look at it how the author understands it, and then how he explains it. But it picks up in verse 5, right? He's Continuing this argument about the Son of God being better than the angels when he says it was not, for it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. There was a dominant theology that God had subjected the present world to the angels, based on a, a passage in Deuteronomy 32. He's saying the world to come is not ruled by angels. It's ruled by someone else. It's someone else's kingdom. He develops that in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. Now, side note, by the way, it has been testified somewhere is not code for, I don't really remember where, but I'm pretty sure somebody said, um, it has been testified somewhere is sort of another way of saying like the Bible says. He he knows where he's getting this quote from. It's just, it's like how you probably couldn't give me the street address of your best friend's house, right? But you know how to get there even if you don't know the number exactly or the street. I was taking a walk in our neighborhood yesterday and uh, stopped by a garage sale, and somebody asked me, do you live in this hood? And uh, I said, yeah. She says, where do you live? And I was like, I don't remember the streets. I know the house number, but I can't remember the, 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 the side streets, right? So when he says it has been testified somewhere, he means I can take you exactly there. But verses and chapters weren't added until 800 years ago. So they didn't have them. He didn't have a way of referring to it other than saying it has been testified somewhere. So... Anyway, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's a quote from Psalm 8. 
Now, I'm going to go back to Psalm 8 for a minute and read it in its original context and form. If you're using a full Bible, you could turn there, but it might be better if you just sort of follow it along in Hebrews to hear how it's a little bit different as I read it. I'm going to expand my quote to be kind of both sides of what the author of Hebrews here quotes. Psalm 8 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. As you can hear, it's a little different, right? It's a little fuller in its psalmate context. We're going to put it up on the screen. Uh, it's a little small, so it might be a little difficult for you to read, but that's okay. Mostly, it's not the words I want you to see, but how they sort of change in shape as the author of Hebrews uh, grabs a hold of them. So what I read from Psalm 8 in its original uh, context is a psalm of praise to God. It's addressed to God. It's proclaiming his infinite greatness. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. You're able to use even the weak and defenseless infants and babies, toddlers, as a people of strength because you are so powerful. And then the psalmist looks up to the heavens. Of course, this is before light pollution, so he could actually see some stars. Looks up to the heavens, the work of your fingers, and he says, I look at all of this, the sun, the moon, the stars, and I think, what is man? What is humanity? What are we that you would care about us at all? Look what you've created. Why do you pay any attention, any special attention to us? You say, when I think about how big the cosmos is, how vast and mysterious, how utterly regulated and yet utterly inscrutable the world outside my head is, I can't help but think of myself as small, as insignificant, as tiny, perhaps not worth much in the grand scheme of things. It reminds me of a classic Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where they're outside looking at the stars and it says, we're just a speck on a planet spinning through the galaxy. There's a contemplative moment before Calvin says, let's go inside and turn on all the lights. I need to feel bigger than that makes me feel, right? What, what is man? What, what are we, fail creatures, that God would pay any attention to us? But then the psalmist balances that perspective immediately. He says, yet you have made him, meaning humanity, meaning us, a little lower than the heavenly beings, just a little bit lower than the angels, and you've crowned him, meaning humanity, meaning us, with glory and honor. The psalmist describes humanity with an incredible amount of dignity, saying that God has ordained a special role for the human race in the created order. We have a special place to have dominion over the works of God's own hands, all that God had created, the earth, everything in it. Now, dominion doesn't mean domination, though I, I, I'm sure that's mostly what we hear when we hear the word dominion. Dominion means to rule or sovereignty, a, a benevolent control. To have dominion over creation is to rule it the way a king should rule his people, you know, not for his good, but for their own good. 
to have dominion over creation is to actively work to rearrange the raw elements of the world into an order that is most conducive to the flourishing of the world and the people in it. I'm the first of five boys, and quite often when my parents uh, just needed to escape, uh, thanks for that chuckle, <laughs> when my parents needed a break, they'd put me in charge. I'm not thankful for that chuckle. Uh, you can imagine how well it didn't work as I sat on the couch and dictated to my brothers which of the chores on the chore list that were mine they needed to do for me. This is, that's domination, not the kind of dominion that we have in mind here. The role that God intended for humanity to exercise, it's a role given to us all the way back in Genesis 1, the origin story, to be co-rulers with God over his creation. That's why we're here. That's why you are here. To co-rule with God the part of creation over which you have authority. Your home, your school, your workplace, your office, your job, even just your bedroom. Is your domain, your area of authority within which God is calling you to rule it in cooperation with him to rearrange the raw materials, the elements, the, uh, the things, the people, the stuff, the material of that area into an arrangement that is most conducive to its flourishing and to the flourishing of those that live within that environment. That's how God calls us to see the, the parts of the world over which we have authority. We, by doing that, literally, we, we erect signposts of peace, of shalom, that point the way towards the kingdom to come, the world to come when we rule it with God the way he intended for us to. So when we, we look at this vast world and we're, we're tempted to think we're so small and insignificant and frail to be of little to no value at all, this psalm reminds us God made us just a little lower than the heavenly beings, just a little lower than the angels. He crowned us with glory and honor, gave us a role to play, a job to do, to co-rule with him. This psalm is a glorious song to the dignity of humanity. But interestingly, throughout its use, Jewish theologians have consistently pointed to this psalm to emphasize the insignificance of people. Rather than humanity's exalted rule as, as co-kings over the created order. And I think that's because the history of humanity is a failure to live up to this image. See, this, this psalm is not a picture of a bygone era uh, of the garden before the fall, so much as it can be understood as a, as a picture of what the world will look like one day. Throughout history, mankind has failed to live up to the role that God designed for us. The story of Adam, of Noah, of Israel, of Moses, of on and on, is, is the story of humanity failing to embrace our rule as co-rulers of creation. We've more often exploited creation than embraced it. <coughs> Excuse me, we've used creation up rather than building it up. So as the author begins to consider, as the author of Hebrews begins to anticipate the counter-argument that's going to come when he introduces Jesus as the Son of God, he knows he's going to face this challenge. How could Jesus be the son of God? He was a man. He died. That doesn't compute. Gods don't die. So he turns to Psalm 8. 
a, a song about the dignity of humanity in the created order that God has ordained. He's, and he looks at it and he says, you know, Psalm 8, if you look at it, Psalm 8 reminds me of something about Jesus. So he takes these words and he, he presents them here and kind of, a, you know, if you think about it, these words, which were about the kingly role that humanity was intended to play over creation, these These words could be talking about Jesus and his ultimate kingly rule over us as we rule over creation. So he takes Psalm 8 and he he isolates it from verse 3. First he takes verse 3 out of of the context. Just to go straight to this question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And then he expands the idea of putting all things under his feet beyond the animal kingdom by removing the reference to the animals. So it's not just about the lesser creation. Now it's all things will be in subjection. And he's reading this psalm in Greek, not the original Hebrew. And the the guys who translated it from Hebrew into Greek made some interpretive choices that sort of changed a little bit the way he read the psalm. So heavenly beings becomes angels in his version of it. Becomes angels. There we go. And... uh, Finally, he, he subsumes the phrase, you have, given, you have given dominion over the works of his hands underneath the idea of putting all things under his feet. So instead of the parallels there, we've got a sort of a threefold movement. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man, common phrase to refer to Jesus, that you would care for him. And yet, you've made him a little lower than the angels. So now, if I think we make one more shift to get this from, you know, into the Greek version that he's using in Hebrews 2, and, and here's what we have. What we end up with, this, since he's reading it through this Christological lens, he's got his Jesus glasses on as he reads this psalm. These three lines there in, in verse 5 and following, they, they form a confession of faith that celebrates the three successive movements of the drama of redemption. The incarnation, the exaltation, and the final victory of Jesus. This almost becomes a confessional statement in the way we would recite a creed like the Apostles' Creed or something like that. This is Jesus' past incarnation, his present exaltation, his future final victory of Jesus. This, This psalm now becomes about summarizing the ministry of Jesus among us. Incarnation, exaltation, final victory. I'll explain how these these work out. For the first stage is the incarnation. Now that him refers to Jesus or can be taken to refer to Jesus, uh, you can see how you have made him a little lower than the angels uh, becomes a statement of incarnation. Right? Jesus, who is the son of God, not God's first and highest created being. Jesus was not created. The son of God is God himself, the second person of the Trinity existing in an eternal son to father relationship with God the Father. And the Son of God became human. He added humanity onto his deity in order to experience death for us, as the author of Hebrews is about to argue. It's his incarnation when he chose to empty himself by taking on the form of a servant, by becoming like one of us, by becoming human. He made himself for a little while lower than the angels. That's his incarnation. The next stage is his exaltation. You know, to exalt something means to lift it up, to raise it up, to to get it up into this area where everyone can see it and so praise it. And in this phrase, you have crowned him with glory and honor. 
our author of Hebrews sees Jesus' exaltation. Because Jesus died, because Jesus experienced death for all, he's worthy to be crowned with glory and honor, to be raised up and exalted over all. And the last stage is his final victory. In those words, putting everything in subjection under his feet, what the original psalmist meant as a statement of humanity's rulership over creation, the author of Hebrews applies to Jesus as the ultimate king over all of humanity, over all of creation. His final victory then is a, a future reality, the ultimate state of the world at the end of all things. One commentator says it's because Jesus, the true king, became human that it became possible for him to fulfill the original intention of Psalm 8. In Jesus, the full dignity and destiny of humanity find their ultimate expression as all things, not just the animal world, are submitted to him. Now, seeing how we got to where the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 then can inform how we read the next couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 2 because he goes on now to explain how the incarnation, the exaltation, and the final victory goes on to explain uh, each of them. And he starts at the end with the final victory, uh, with the sort of immediate objection, uh, which is in verse 8, the immediate objection being like, it doesn't look like there's been a final victory yet. Right, so he says, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Some scribes add, the, add a little word, except for God. Except for God the Father. But in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, this is kind of the, the turning point in the arguments our author is making. Before he can introduce who the Son of God is as Jesus, he has to explain that, okay, yeah, so we're reading this to see that, that Jesus will ultimately rule everything. You may remember, if you go back to chapter 1, um, that, oh, where is it? Right there in verse 13, uh, Psalm 110 is referenced, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, very often in the New Testament, th these two psalms, Psalm 110, one, enemies of footstool for your feet, and this one, all things in subjection under your feet, are quoted together. Right? You can kind of see the similarities. So he's saying, okay, it, to explain how the, the Son of God could be Jesus and yet not in rulership over everything, but actually under it, he says, okay, right now we don't yet see it. We don't yet see everything in subjection to the royal king, to the Son of God. And it's easy to look around and see, yeah, it's not yet the world is not yet subjected to the benevolent rule of the royal son of God. Not in the sense of the original psalm, where mankind uh, in, the, in the peace of the garden would have full uh, control over all of animal kind, uh, nor in this sort of Christological reading it through your Jesus glasses sense. The world is not yet morally in subjection to the royal son, as the author of Hebrews sees it. The, the world is not under the complete rulership of God's son not yet morally conformed to the righteousness that describes the kingdom to come. Everything is not yet in Jesus' final control. But the final victory is still to come. It is coming. It will come. The incarnation has proved it. So he explains the incarnation. He says, but we, we do see him who for a little while was made lower uh, than the angels. 
We see him, this is verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He says, all right, so not everything is in subjection to him because we see him now a little while lower than the angels. So he's actually subjecting himself to his own creation. And now that he's laid all of this groundwork for who the Son of God is and what state he's in right now, finally he can say, we see him, Jesus We see him who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, it's no surprise for us when we finally identify who the Son of God is. Uh, But for someone reading this, uh, maybe reading it for the first time and confronting sort of uh, coming from a Jewish background and confronting this exposition of the Old Testament for the first time to, to hear that first there's, there's a son of God and he's made, uh, he's made atonement, final atonement for sins and he's greater than the angels and then to find out it's Jesus, this person I had heard about and had heard talked about, this actual human being, this is a revolutionary idea. Now he's, the, the author is going to go on to to defend his identification of of Jesus as the Son of God, a human as the Son of God. Uh, But right now, he's he's just saying Jesus is the one who is the royal Son of God, God himself who became man, was made for a little while lower than the angels. And this Jesus who will one day triumph over all, who was made lower than the angels, is now exalted. He's crowned with glory and honor. So his exaltation, him being crowned with glory and honor, raises a a question, why? Why be crowned if you've become a human and died? Why would you be crowned? We usually don't put crowns on dead kings and then submit to them. So how can someone be made lower than the angels, even if only for a little while, and then be exalted, especially someone who died? And the author of Hebrews says, because of the suffering of death. See it in verse 9? He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. It's actually also the first mention of death in this letter that the royal son of God died. There's a mention way back in chapter 1 and verse 2, I think, that the, uh, the son of God had made atonement, uh, that he had, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's verse 3. So he'd made purification, but no real hint there yet that he'd made purification by sacrificing himself. And so the, someone reading this along for the first time is hearing, so the son of God is an actual person who was higher, then became lower, and then actually died, and then is now crowned with glory and honor because of his death, exalted because of his death. It's a lot to take in. And yet, it's, if you think about it, for somebody whose, whose scriptures consist entirely of the Hebrew Old Testament, someone who's reading this or hearing this preached is hearing the Old Testament explained in such a way that it connects their Jewish background with the person of Jesus in a radically new way that they hadn't considered before. It's a completely revolutionary idea because I've said it a couple of times already, everyone knows gods don't die. 
right? Gods don't die unless it's symbolic of some sort of cosmic rebirth and, or, you know, death and rebirth over the course of seasons or something like that. But gods don't die. It's just not godlike to die. Almost uh, 20 years ago, the Canadian author Jan Martel published his fantasy adventure novel, The Life of Pi. Maybe you saw the movie. Uh, but in the early chapters of the book, the young Indian boy, Pai, is uh, exploring different religions. And in an encounter with a priest named Father Martin, young Pai reacts to the story of Jesus recording his thoughts like this. He says, the first thing that drew me in was disbelief. He says, what humanity sins, but it's God's son who pays the price? That a God should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified at the hands of mere humans to boot. Divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. It was wrong of this Christian God to let his avatar die. He says, tantamount to letting a part of himself die. He says, for if the son is to die, it cannot be fake. If God on the cross is God shamming a human tragedy, it turns the passion of Christ into the farce of Christ. The death of the son must be real. Father Martin assured me that it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of the father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. See, the very thing that is most inscrutable, that a God should die, is the very thing that, according to the author of Hebrews, happened. And it is it's because of his death that Jesus is exalted, that he's crowned with glory and honor. We praise him because of his death. Now, not that there's anything particularly glorious about being executed as a revolutionary among petty thieves. What makes his death glorious is that his death was for everyone, as it says at the end of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The grace of God to us, the undeserved goodness of God to us is that his own royal son died in our place, experienced death for each of us. Now, what do you do with that? How do we pause to, to grasp the idea of a, of a God dying, of a God dying on behalf of his own creation? It's a revolutionary thought. Turns out when I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? The answer, it turns out, is everything. Everything. For nothing else in this world did God himself choose to die in order to redeem it from the destruction and despair that it had created for itself. 
There's nothing else in this world whose form God took on in order to identify with it and save it from himself. There's no story of God becoming an angel in order to redeem the fallen angels. There's no story of God becoming an animal in order to redeem the fallen animals. But there is a story of God becoming human to redeem the fallen humans. We, humanity, are of infinitely more value than we could have ever imagined, of much more value than we could ever create for ourselves. And not just humanity, but you, personally, individually, you are of much more value to God than you've ever given to yourself. And you may think yourself as unworthy of that kind of attention. I mean, we all, we all do. It's uncomfortable to have attention directed at us. I was with a couple of friends last night, and we were remembering about how I and another friend had put our third friend at the center of attention by just stepping backwards and leaving him all alone in front of an applauding room a few months ago. He still hasn't forgiven me for it, which is fine. I deserve it. It was great. But none of us like to have that much attention put on ourselves. We don't know what to do or how to stand or how to hold your hands when people are clapping for you or whatever. So facing the fact that we are actually valuable to someone is sometimes goes against our, our, the grain of our nature. To stand before God and simply feel valued and loved you immediately want to start pointing out flaws. Oh, I know you love me, but I'm still working on this, or I'm still trying to make progress in this area. It's like if you ever made something and then showed it to someone and you're really proud of it, but as soon as someone's looking at it, you start pointing out all the little flaws. Like, I know I give it my, but, but here, you know, there's this and, and there's that. Musicians, those who perform for a living, like, you know what I'm talking about. You'll play a piece and someone will come and say, that was beautiful. And you're like, yeah, but you didn't hear me totally flub the fourth bar on the second page. We are of infinite value to God, so much so that he was willing to taste death on our behalf. Now, taste, of course, in this context does not mean like he just took a little sample of death. Oh, yes, it's bad. Taste means to experience, to cognitively and affectively uh, bring that experience into yourself. We're trying to get our seven-year-old daughter to, to try new foods. And every time we say, here, try this, you'll like it. She says, what does it taste like? I don't know. I mean, I could use words or pictures like in Ratatouille when all the sparkles are going off. Like I could try to use words, but you just have to taste it to know what it tastes like. You can't explain it. You have to experience it. And the Son of God tasted death, experienced death, entered death on our behalf. And now the son has the taste of death forever in his mouth for you. Now, maybe you're the type of person where you've heard all this before. Yeah, yeah, God died for me, whatever. I'm not sure I buy it. Look, and I understand that. It is, it is hard to believe Sometimes it's hard to make sense of. And if it, if it were something I were trying to logically convince you of on the order of a mathematical proof, something like that, you'd be right to be skeptical. Uh, but 
Jesus is not a mathematical proof or a logical set of propositions you need to give assent to. He's a person that we want to introduce you to. We want you to meet. He's a person you can get to, to know. So if you've never met him, come talk to me. I want to introduce you to him. I want to tell you more about him. So you can get to know the only God who became man, who became us so he could take us to him. Or maybe you're the type of person who you've heard all this before and you believe it, but it's, it's lost a bit of its charm. Maybe it's lost its power to possess your affections. So I'll give you a little bit of homework this week. Take some time, blank sheet of paper, grab a pen or a pencil, maybe pull up a new Word doc or something like that, sit in front of your computer, and just for a couple of moments, write down the times when someone did something for you you didn't expect, maybe didn't deserve or earn. Right? Maybe the boss took the heat for you on a mistake that you made at work. Uh, maybe a spouse jumped in and um, did the dishes when it was your night or made the bed when you were the last one up. Uh, maybe a sibling jumped in and, and did a chore for you that was actually yours. Let's be honest, that never happens. But if it did, write it down. Maybe a friend handled something that you didn't want to handle. Write down what happened and then write down how you felt about it. How did it change the way you felt about the person who did that thing for you? And then at the bottom of the page, write down... What did Jesus do for me? And then write it out. Except don't just put died for me. We've used that phrase so much, it's almost meaningless. I mean, it has meaning, but it's emotionally meaningless for us. Write it out in your own words what Jesus did and is doing for you. Why did he die? What did he save you from? At what cost to himself? For what reason? Write out and reflect. Kind of journal a bit what Jesus did, and then the emotion that knowing this has happened for you, what emotion does that create? How does that change your affections? How does that impact you? It's an exercise we can all take. I mean, it's why we come to church, right? To reflect on what Jesus did for us so that we can have a, an emotional and volitional response uh, in line with the call on our lives now that we know this God. But it's, it's the kind of thing we have to do on our own time as well. Because things fade. We, we talked about that in the last couple of weeks. So if you didn't hear Pastor Jeff's sermons, look those up. And finally, maybe you're the type of person who's heard this all before. You believe it. You want it to be the central driving force of your life. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. I'm a pastor. I'd love to hear that. Your responsibility is to keep the incarnation, the, the exaltation, the final victory of Jesus front of mind. To, to live out of... Uh, our identity as, as servants of the king of the kingdom to come, uh, of the royal son of God who became man for us, died for us, was made for a little while lower than the angels, and then was crowned with glory and honor because of his death. And one day we'll have all things in subjection under his feet, including us and his fiercely benevolent goodwill toward us and towards creation will rule everything in perfect peace keep that front and center. We serve others in the name of Jesus. We introduce others to this Jesus that we've met. My wife's uh, grandmother, 
So our daughter, Anna's great-grandmother, uh, on her mom's side, Jenna's mom's side, um, is slowly dying. She's, she's probably got just a few months left. Uh, she's been a pastor's wife uh, for 50 years. She and her husband were married. He uh, died about eight years ago from uh, Parkinson's, and as he was uh, fading, uh, it's just things got very, it, his, it got slow inside of his head. He couldn't keep up with everything that was happening. So all of his phrasing would come out kind of slowly, and, and he'd have a hard time keeping up with the conversation unless we asked him to pray. And then his voice got stronger, and his rhythm came back, and his, the firmness of his speech was there until he died the day after Easter. So his wife, Jenna's grandmother, is now in the last few months of her life, and she's forgetting things. Uh, she's forgetting the name of her kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. She's forgetting who she's talking to. She's getting lost in her apartment. But Jenna's mom was with her last week, and they were praying before Jenna's mom left. And her grandmother prayed something like this as it was relayed to us. She said, Jesus, I'm, I'm forgetting things, and it scares me. I don't want to forget who you are and what you've done for me. It's her last prayer before she dies is, I don't want to die having forgotten who you are and what you've done for me. How the Son of God became man, made himself for a little while lower than the angels, tasted death for us and is now crowned with glory and honor and will one day bring all things into subjection under his feet. Our God, our Savior is greater. He is greater than all other gods, greater than every other way of understanding the world, because our God became one of us to bring us to him. Father, you are greater, and you have, in your son, in Jesus, you have become one of us to make us one with you. Help us to not forget who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.